When our son Anderson was just four years old, he came to me and said, Mama, I'm going to bake a cake all by myself. And I said, really? Well, okay, what kind of cake are you going to bake? He said chocolate. He was very sure about that. Chocolate frosting. And then he paused for a minute, and I could tell he was thinking, and he said, Mama, could you help me bake a cake all by myself? And that is how I believe sermon writing goes. I have to stop and ask God if he will please help me share a message all by myself. Would you please bow your heads with me? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for the opportunity to worship as a church family this morning. I ask that you will please open our hearts to what you have to say to us today. Please give us a deeper understanding of your love, goodness, and will for our lives. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be found acceptable in your sight. Amen. This morning we will once again be having a kid quiz. So kids, I have a few questions for you. And if you can answer these questions for me at the end of church today, that's after everything, the announcements, it's all over. If you can come up to me and answer these questions, I have just a very small gift for you, okay? And here's a helpful hint. The answers will all be given to you, but you have to listen very carefully for them. Here are your questions. Number one, what were the man and his son taking to the market? Number two, where was Paul when he wrote Philippians? And number three, what things should we think about? Okay, let's begin. I thought about making my title for today's message be more like Peter. But of course, not Peter from the Bible, our very own Peter Chamberlain. Last time I checked, he still did not own a cell phone, much less a smartphone, and he seems to be very, living a very good, well-rounded life. Peter, I commend you for doing this. It is very admirable, and unfortunately, you won't be able to identify with any of the statistics I'm about to share. So currently, 81% of Americans own smartphones. People tap, swipe, and click an average of 2,617 times per day. iPhone users unlock their phones an average of 80 times per day. Users spend an average of two hours and 51 minutes every day on their smartphones. 71% of smartphone users usually sleep with their device within immediate reach. We spend an average of five years and four months of our lifetimes on social media. YouTube takes the number one spot there, around one year and 10 months, followed by Facebook, one year and seven months. These numbers are quite disturbing 
when compared to how much time an average person spends on common daily activities. On average, we only spend three years and five months eating and drinking, and only six months of our lives doing laundry, although I'm pretty sure I've spent six months on laundry this year alone. Pastor and author John Mark Comer says, what if the greatest threat to the Christian faith today isn't secularism, but distraction? We live in an era where it is possible to go through your entire life and never really be alone, because even when we're alone, we're on our phone or the internet or in our entertainment queue, The moment that most of us are ever alone in a room or even in our car, we reach for the appendage of our device. Check our text, open social media, read the news, play music, put on a podcast, Google, whatever. Our devices keep us tethered to the world of noise. And the threat of all this noise and distraction isn't just to our minds or even to our bodies, it's to our souls. How many moments have I missed where God wanted to speak to me or shape me, but I was distracted by my devices? I have talked about the dangers of distraction from up front before, um, so some of you may have heard this story. Um, But for those who haven't, here you go. One day when Ellie was, I think, two or three years old, Um, I was working on my laptop, and I was really engrossed in what I was doing. And as part of the background noise, I kept hearing, Mama, Mama, Mama. And so I glance over, and I see that Ellie is coming to me with her finger out. So just on autopilot, I grab her little finger, I put it to my lips. There you go, Ellie, all better. But Ellie doesn't go away like I expect her to do. Instead, she stands there looking at me with her little eyebrows knitted together, still holding out her finger, and she says, No, Mama, not hurt, booger. (laughs) When we live our lives in a distracted way, we miss some very important things. And for those of us who own smartphones, which I'm guessing is most everyone in the room today, We know that they're good for a lot of things, right? I love getting hilarious gifts from my friends. I love the ability to send a quick text to someone or check in or make plans. I love staying in touch with people and knowing when important things happen. I think we can all agree on those things. The problem is that there's always a mix, right? Within social media, to get to the good stuff, You have to scroll past angry rants, post from that one relative who always has a conspiracy theory to share, and my favorite, specially tailored ads for me about how to fight aging and lose weight. And so, say you are completely off of social media, at least with an Apple device, the very first screen on your phone will be Apple News. On good days, making you feel grumpy about politicians, and on bad days, sharing the latest natural disaster that has killed thousands and left countless others stranded. We are told to simply think on good things, but mind over matter 
can be a really difficult thing. I had seen many people online taking ice baths. Have you all seen this? The good, a few of you. Um, and then one day I was talking to my friend, and she mentioned that she takes ice baths and loves how they make her feel. And I just thought, everyone else is doing this, I can too. So one day I decided I'm going to try it. And I thought it might be difficult, but all you have to do is set your mind to it, right? So I filled our tub about halfway full with the coldest water that came out of the tap, which up in Estes Park is very cold. And then I took the ice bucket out of the freezer and just dumped the whole thing into the bath. And I let it sit for a minute so the ice could do its thing and kind of so I could also work up my courage. And what I had seen looked like most people were sitting in their ice baths for about five minutes. But I thought, that's kind of ambitious. I'm going to start slow. So what I did was I took the alarm on my phone and I set it for three minutes. And then I thought, okay, when the alarm goes off, I'll know now I need to get out of the bath. I took a few deep breaths, told myself, mind over matter, and I sat down in the water. Folks, that water is way colder than it looks. Sure, there's ice floating in it, but you just don't know how icy it is until you've submerged your body in it. So I'm sitting there, and I keep telling myself, I can do this. This isn't that bad. But my toes start to hurt like an ice cream headache, but in your toes. And I try to do some deep breaths, but they're coming really fast because the water is just so shocking. And then I think, okay, the alarm hasn't gone off yet, but I just don't think I can make it all the way to three minutes. I've got to get out of here. So I make my quick escape from the tub. I grab a warm towel. I look at my phone. I had been in my ice bath for exactly 17 seconds. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, as I was beginning to get my thoughts down on paper for this sermon, I started reading more and more about the damaging effects of social media, a constant stream of news, and basically being on your device all the time. So I asked Alaya if he thought that as a family we could do a sort of media fast. And when I asked him, it wasn't like a permission type of question, it was more do you think we can even do this? Like, if we set our minds to it, can we do this? And Aliyah, who I just want to tell all of you, Aliyah is just as wonderful at home as you see up front. Um, he was with me on this. He was up for the challenge. So we made some exceptions, but the main goals were for he and I to stay off Facebook and Instagram. I wouldn't let myself see the news feed, and try not to click on any news articles, um, and that we as a family wouldn't end our nights by watching shows. We would try to do something else together. This is really hard because my family and I love to watch shows. In fact, one of my favorite things to say when I hear about someone who's 
highly successful, travels extensively, works out faithfully. I love to say, wow, that's really incredible, but I wonder how they ever find any time to watch TV. So we are still in the middle of this experiment, and I found that everyone has done really well, except for me. My family, I discovered, is not the problem. It's me, hi, I'm the problem, it's me. I found myself, when I got stumped writing this sermon, I would just pick up my phone and automatically open Instagram Reels. When I got tired working at the shop, I would absentmindedly just scroll over to the news feed on the iPad. And any sort of downtime I had throughout the day, I would try to zone out. But being mostly, because I have not done this very well, being mostly off of these platforms has helped me identify some of the things I don't love about them. One, it takes me out of the moment. I don't like that I was missing things people around me were saying because I was distracted by my phone. Two, I read about things I'm supposed to care about, which takes me away, like takes away my focus from the things right in front of me that I actually care about. And then three, I'm bombarded with conflicting advice. And as a people pleaser, this adds extra stress to my life. This conflicting advice reminds me of one of Aesop's fables, which I'm sure you're familiar with this. A man and his son were once going with their donkey to the market. As they were walking along, a countryman passed them and said, You fools, what is a donkey for but to ride upon? So the man put the boy on the donkey and they went on their way. But soon they passed a group of men, one of whom said, See that lazy youngster? He lets his father walk while he rides. So the man ordered his boy to get off and got on himself. But they hadn't gone far when they passed two women, one of whom said to the other, Shame on that lazy lout to let his poor little son trudge along. Well, the man didn't know what to do, but at last he took his boy up before him on the donkey, and they rode on the donkey together. By this time they had come to the town, and the passers-by began to jeer and point at them. The man stopped and asked what they were scoffing at. The men said, aren't you ashamed of yourself for overloading that poor donkey of yours, you and your hulking son? The man and the boy got off and tried to think what to do. They thought and they thought until at last they cut down a pole, tied the donkey's feet to it, and raised the pole and the donkey to their shoulders to carry the donkey. They went along amid the laughter of all who met them until they came to a bridge, when the donkey, getting one of his feet loose, kicked out and caused the boy to drop his end of the pole. In the struggle, the donkey fell over the bridge and was lost in the water below. It is not good for us to constantly receive the advice of others. And sure, the moral of the story is to not conform to what others think of you. 
But I find that when I am scrolling through reels, that I am inviting a steady stream of, don't do that, do this instead. People who don't know my story or my situation offering me their advice. They don't care if it's good for me or my donkey. And it is mentally exhausting. David Kinneman, founder of the Barna Group, co-wrote a book called Faith for Exiles. In it, he talks about what he terms digital Babylon, which is our current culture that is marked by phenomenal access, profound alienation, and a crisis of authority. In it, he writes, Deep spiritual longings, which ought to be lovingly tended and skillfully cultivated, are choked to death by binge television, immersive gaming, and social media scrolling. We are bombarded in digital Babylon with unprecedented force and frequency by conflicting chaotic messages about what matters and how to live. These messages are constantly changing. We must anchor our search for identity in something deeper and truer, which means we must, like Daniel and his comrades, learn the habits of devotion. We must repeat to ourselves and to one another what the Bible says about us. The idea of identity is relatively new language for the way we humans conceive of our experience. And the Bible invites us to consider human reality in an ancient but relevant way. And truly, these feelings of alienation, worry, and anxiety are not new to our generation or culture. That is why there is a lot of centuries-old advice within the Bible about guarding our minds. Do not worry. Do not fear. Think about good things. Paul and many other Bible authors knew how short our lives actually are. And so they urge us to make the most of the time we are given. In his book, The Men We Need, Brant Hansen talks about the negative view that so many people project onto parenting. He writes, here's how it usually goes down, and I share this from experience. Your wife is expecting. This is going to be pretty exciting, you say. They say, you just wait. You just wait because you won't be getting any sleep once that baby's born. It's all over. It gets harder. It gets worse. Your baby is fun. You think it's hilarious how he's amused by one particular stuffed dog above all other toys. They say, you just wait. Just wait, because when that kid is toddling around, pulling down the curtains and getting into stuff, you can't look away for a second. It gets harder. It gets worse. Your toddler is a blast. Everything is new and wonderful to her, from puppies to repeatedly crashing towers of blocks She laughs all the time and wants you to do again. They say, just you wait. Just wait. Because when your kid starts really talking, you'll get tired of that sassy mouth. You'll wish she was still a year old. 
it gets harder, it gets worse. Your elementary age kid is an absolute joy. You can take him swimming, play catch with him, and teach him hilarious end zone dances to amuse your friends. They say, you just wait. Just wait until he's a teenager because he'll learn how much he doesn't like you and won't want to have anything to do with you no matter what. He'll eat everything and you'll get tired of him and want him out of the house as soon as possible. It gets harder. It gets worse. Your teenager is fascinating. You can't get enough of him. He makes you laugh because, well, you saddled him with your exact sense of humor. You get to play video games with him. He beats you at chess, sometimes 20 times in a row. He fills your home with music, first with a screeching sound that months later becomes recognizably melodic, and then with the sweetness of Bach on violin. He mows the lawn, not always happily, but he does it. You catch him listening to your favorite bands in his room. He says things that you never thought about before. He grows taller than you. They say, you just wait. Just wait until he moves away. Sorry, guys. Just wait until he moves away because your heart will break in two. And for once, for the very first time ever, they're right. You see, if we spend our time, our lives, focused on the bad things, we miss all the absolute good that surrounds us. I think this is why Paul admonishes us to think on good things. And why Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, Therefore do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. In the same way that when you are shopping for a new car, or even just wanting one, you see that car everywhere you look. As I was preparing to talk about this message from Paul, I kept seeing messages everywhere that pertain to it. I came across this wonderful quote from Alex Bryan, Chief Mission Officer at Adventist Health. He wrote, Hunting good news is a powerful way to change the world. Finding good, sharing good, naming good, looking for the good. Even in a haystack of yuck, finding the good needle. Paul was bullish. Whatever is true, noble, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, think about such things. Stacking goodness upon goodness. That's how good news becomes incarnated in mind and body. The prophets of doom have their moment, and that moment is called rare, is called infrequent, is called seldom. Name evil when necessary, but less so than naming good, which is more needful in spades. I recently read the story of Dr. Edith Eva Egger in her book, The Choice. As a young girl, she was a ballerina and a gymnast 
and was training to go to the Olympics. But at the age of 16, she was sent, along with her family, to Auschwitz. On the train, on the way there, not knowing what lay in store for them, her mother told her, listen, we don't know where we're going. We don't know what's going to happen. Just remember, no one can take away from you what you've put in your mind. When they arrive at the camp, Edith's mother and father are sent to the gas chambers, while Edith and her sister Magda are sent to a line to wait for their uniforms. As part of the system, all prisoners have their heads shaved. Magda looks at her with her newly shaved head and asks, how do I look? And Edith writes, the truth? She looks like a mangy dog, a naked stranger. I can't tell her this, of course, but any lie would hurt too much. And so I must find an impossible answer, a truth that doesn't wound. I gaze into the fierce blue of her eyes and think that even for her to ask the question, how do I look, is the bravest thing I've ever heard. There aren't mirrors here. She is asking me to help her find and face herself. And so I tell her the one true thing that's mine to say. Your eyes, I tell my sister, they're so beautiful. I never noticed them when they were covered up by all that hair. It's the first time I see that we have a choice to pay attention to what we've lost or to pay attention to what we still have. See, we all live lives that are a mixture of good and bad. We all have joys and pains, and within these lives, we are all given a choice. Will we focus on the things we want to change, we wish were better, we fear will happen, or will we, like Paul, focus on all the good things we have been given? It is countercultural to live this way. When your Instagram feed says, lose your hips and your thighs, you say, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. When your news feed says, prepare now for the economic downturn, you say, I will not worry. When your Facebook friend says, you won't believe what the government is planning, you say, I will think on good things. When the morning news show says, watch, these, watch for these five hidden dangers, you say, I will not be afraid. Paul, of all people, knew how bad life could get. The letter we read in Philippians was actually written while he was in prison. And yet, it offers one of the most liberating concepts. You don't have to follow the advice of every influencer. You don't have to be swayed by your newsfeed. You don't have to worry about the things the world is telling you to worry about. 
Whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think on these things.